0: Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is an international best-selling author of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. He is the podcast host of Wealth Formula, a real asset investor, and he is a board-certified surgeon. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Buck Joffrey. Buck, how are you doing?
1: Doing well, thank you.
0: Awesome to have you here. Buck, why don't you take a couple of minutes and talk us through your backstory and how you got into investing, how you went from being a doctor, a surgeon into investing.
1: So I think uh, for me, um, you know, I just started down a conventional path where a lot of uh, good students, A students end up, which was being in college and figure, you know, you have a few choices that A students sometimes make. You can go to med school, law school, business school, whatever. Uh, so I chose, uh, med school and, um, went down that, uh, that path and pretty soon ended up, um, you know, finding myself in a decade worth of <laughs> almost two decades worth of school and, um, finished, uh, my residency as a head and neck surgeon in plastic surgery as well. And that was in 2008, 2009. Um, and at that time, kind of was burned out on academics because I was doing a lot of academic medicine and, uh, was looking for something else. But, uh, I, uh, randomly ended up reading a Robert Kiyosaki book called The Cashflow Quadrant, um, the day after, well, the day after, uh, residency finished, uh, my wife and I, uh, got married and then we went on a honeymoon and, um. And then on the way back from a honeymoon in Puerto Vallarta, I randomly found a Kiyosaki book in the airport. i never heard of Robert Kiyosaki, never knew anything about him. Um, read this book about entrepreneurship and, you know, how uh, how how you can look at the world differently than being an employee. And all of this was brand new to me, and uh, it was like a bolt of lightning. And the next thing you know, I, I come off the plane and uh, I went from being an academic surgeon to wanting to start a business and uh, being an entre- entrepreneur and an investor. So that's what I did. And um, so I did end up going at, doing a private practice type situation initially, but because of what I was learning, decided very early on that it wanted to be something I could exit without being a part of it. Uh, and having it continue. So today, you know, it's 10 years later. I still have that, uh, original practice in Chicago. I live in Santa Barbara, California. And, um, mostly now I'm, I'm just in the world of, of investing and, uh, that's what I do for a living. So.
0: I've read that book, The F- the Cash Flow Quadrant, and I think one of the most interesting things and the epiphanies for me when I read it was I always thought entrepreneurship was the same as a small business owner. And reading that book, you realize that that's not the case. An entrepreneur is someone who solves problems, where a small business owner might be actually self-employed. So if you opened your own practice as a doctor and you were actually seeing and treating patients and working, you were you basically created a job for yourself. As an entrepreneur, you're actually able to step back and hire other people to do the work for you. So was that kind of a realization you had as well?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of, um, particularly because my first business was in uh, cosmetic surgery, and I uh, the first one I started in, I think a lot of my colleagues who were doing the same thing at that point, sort of wanted to be that famous plastic surgeon, and uh, you know, like Dr. 99210 or, you know, whoever on TV. And um, I realized pretty quickly that, you know, I, it wasn't really of interest to me. What I really wanted to do was create a business. So the last thing I wanted to do is become famous because if I started a business and everybody just wanted me to do a procedure for them, then that I would be trapped there forever. So... Tried very hard not to be famous. In fact, despite all of the you know marketing we're doing, it was very it was a little bit difficult to do it. But that was the way that uh, I approached it. So I approached it as a brand. Uh, a brand is something that you can market and sell, and you know and and uh, sell to somebody else. Uh, you can't do that if you're just you know you're just uh, you know a solo practitioner with your name on the wall because your name comes with you no matter what.
0: Well, that's interesting because I would say you are a little bit famous, but maybe not in the medical space. Because when I go through your podcast and I look at the amazing content you've put out and the hundreds of reviews that you have on iTunes for your podcast, you've developed quite a following.
1: Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think there's different ways to look at it, though, right? Because like if I do, what I'm doing uh, on the podcast, at least, and the businesses that have, you know, ensued at, uh, from, from the podcast, they are, um, uh, infinitely scalable because, uh, I sit behind a microphone and that's where I produce my content, you know? Uh, I don't have to do one surgical procedure after another. So there is no, and, and you, to the extent that you've talked about listening to, uh, my podcast in the past, you've talked about reading a book, uh, you know, these are things that I've created, right? So you may have been doing those things while I was sleeping. And so, so it doesn't really uh, so there's a different type of scaling that you can do. You could be well known you can you know scale your name as long as it doesn't require you to show up and I think that's an important distinction and something that I think it's for for from the standpoint of what I'm doing now it's very different from what it was before
0: yeah, I understand that completely um I've been trying to teach my wife several things about entrepreneurship and investing and things like this. Cause she's starting to get a little bit of a bug for it now herself, you know, after watching me do for this for years. And my wife's from China, so she thought, Oh, maybe I will start teaching people how to speak Chinese. And I said, Okay, that's an interesting idea. But is it scalable? Are you going to be able to, you know, take this to the next level? You know, trying to explain the difference between a, you know, becoming self employed creating a job for yourself or going out there and leveraging time and leveraging other people's experiences to really free yourself from this type of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, that's something that you kind of have to think about from the get go. And we're not, you know, most people don't, uh, you know, most people don't have a lot of exposure to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thought when they first start doing things. And and I think it's, um, and sometimes you kind of, you know, you realize it in the middle of while you're doing something, you say, Well, gosh, again, we can scale this. Like for in cosmetics, we did, we did ultimately, you know, I did end up um, starting a few different offices with other positions and stuff. But then there's, um, you even realize that scaling in and then in itself, there's different kinds of scaling and some are a lot easier than others. Uh, brick and mortar scaling is a lot more, I think, challenging and difficult than it is to be a content creator. You know, I mean, I just, I just have to find, you know, more people who, who want to learn from me now than uh, as opposed to having multiple, uh, you know, leases and multiple, multiple uh, overheads and and all that. So, so yeah, once you, once you, if I, if I could do it again, I think what I, I think what I would have done is, uh you know, would have once I started the initial set. So, practice and stuff I think are really focused primarily on things that you know that were easily scaled without necessarily having to lock myself into a lot of other uh, overhead
0: so talk me through some of those things that maybe you would do different this time
1: around yeah so on the the first cosmetic surgery business I started um, was in Chicago and even when I uh, was uh, when I decided to about. Maybe about four years into it, decided to to move on um, because uh, I wanted to do other things. I I had hired uh, other surgeons to do things, um, and it was going really well. Uh, and I think my at that point, what I thought is, well, gosh, you know, I could reproduce this. Uh, maybe I could do this in you know, several other states, and then create something big, and then you know have a big li- liquidation event. And um so I, I did that. Uh I, I, what I tried to do is I spread into about five or six states within a year. And um uh, I didn't uh I didn't get any funding. I self self funded all of that stuff. And so as you can imagine it got pretty expensive and um I was undercapitalized and I think uh probably at the end of the day realized pretty quickly that it wasn't that easy to do what I was doing um, and, and, you know, turn around and make a profit really quickly. So ended up losing quite a bit of money actually, uh, in that endeavor, ultimately ended up retreating, uh, back into, you know, Chicago. Um, I started, I had started another, uh, two other service related businesses within Chicago that sort of held, held things together and and paid the bills and, and, uh, but, but that was, pr- that was a pretty significant setback for a, a year or two. And, and so I think, like, again, understanding, I got in over my skis, you know, and I, I think the, as an entrepreneur, it's important for you to, it's important for everyone to understand, like, what their own skill set is, what their weaknesses are and strengths are. Um, for me, like, what I realized was, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a really bad operator. I'm not a good operator. And I think when you're trying to do something like, um, you know, that has so many moving, uh, moving parts to it. And so much brick and mortar, et cetera, that you have to be, you know, you have to be a good operator and you have to be willing to, um, you know, the, to, to manage those pieces. And that just wasn't me. So, you know, part of the uh, the entrepreneurial journey is figuring out what, what it is that you're good at and what what you're not. So,
0: Yeah, I understand that completely. After several businesses myself that have failed completely, you really f- start to find the things that you enjoy doing and the things that you have strength in and really doubling down on those. And I think the sooner you're able to figure that out, the faster that you're going to actually have success in your business.
1: Yeah, no question.
0: So, You went from your residency, from being in debt from student loans, to having an eight-figure business in such a short amount of time. Can you talk me through that a little bit? Like, how did that happen?
1: How did that work? Let's put it here's another thing to think about, Mikael is is that people sometimes um, people sometimes choose the wrong entrepreneurial endeavor, uh, not because there's multiple reasons they can choose a, a wrong endeavor. One is you know, they're not good at it Um, and they're not really focused on what their strengths are. The other one is, okay, maybe you can scale it, um, but what if it's not a terribly profitable niche to be, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I was in the medical uh, world, I was in cosmetic surgery, so the numbers were big, right? Um, So it wasn't very difficult, I think, to get I shouldn't say it wasn't difficult, but it was a lot of marketing efforts and in success. And success in that area uh, necessarily equated to, you know, a a business that was doing uh, eight figures in in revenue. Um, Does that make sense? I mean, so part of it is like, okay, you're successful as an entrepreneur. And if you're successful as an entrepreneur now it depends what what area you chose to focus on um if i was a s- successful hedge fund entrepreneur i probably would have been a billionaire then, right <laughs> but but so so in and that's something that again you have to think about and uh, i i look back in retrospect and i think well gosh you know there's probably other decisions i could have made along the way and i probably as an entrepreneur you know i'm an entrepreneur who happens to be a, a surgeon Right. Uh, but, uh, if I was, uh, what I would have done inherently as an entrepreneur is find the inefficiency and the opportunity in anything that I was exposed to. It just so happened for me that it was in, in, in a medical area. Now, in the medical area, uh, you know, creating, creating medical businesses and that sort of thing. What I could do in one area was, you know, success. What that looked like was a eight-figure business. Um, but you know, if it was, if it was, maybe if it was something that uh, uh, that was less profitable, maybe it would have been a six figure business, right? Yeah, so, so that's, that makes sense. That's how I would, that's how I would explain that. So, I
0: noticed a theme when I was listening to your show. You specifically talked to the professional who is earning good money with their job, but often doesn't know what to do with the income. Maybe they've worked really hard to become a doctor or a lawyer or a high-paid professional like that, but when they have this windfall of money, they're really not sure what to do with it. And I thought that was an interesting niche to be in. Can you talk to my listeners who might be in a similar situation as this, where they don't know where to put their money or how to invest it properly?
1: Yeah, so I think we spend a lot of time as, not only as professionals, but as entrepreneurs figuring out how we're going to make money, right? And that's really what we always, what we think about when we're training or when we're trying to find our way, we're, you know, whether it's going through medical school or going through law school or finding your way as an entrepreneur, um, what you're really trying to do is figuring out, you know, how am I going to make money? But there does come a point of success for everyone. Um, who, who, you know, anyone who's successful, uh, all of a sudden they, they have succeeded and now they are making money, right? And most people don't actually plan for that day. And, uh, and so when it comes, you're like, whoa, I got a bunch of money. What am I going to do with it, right? And so this is the ironic part is, you know, I know a lot of world-class entrepreneurs and really, really smart people Doing extraordinarily creative things. And then as soon as it comes to investing their own money, they just you know, invest like their grandmother. Right. So, um, I think that my, my, um, my thesis in general is to take a little bit of time and start actually thinking about, you know, how do you invest that money rather than just, you know, handing it over to a money manager? Right. So, so that's, that's my, that's my uh, that's my pick, so to speak, because I think that there's a lot of very, very smart people, whether they be doctors, lawyers, uh, entrepreneurs, um, especially entrepreneurs, because, you know, you have an aptitude for creativity to begin with um, to to rather, you know, once you start making money, don't think that you can't be somebody who can also uh, ultimately put that money to work. You know, it's uh it's it's. It's one of these misconceptions that, particularly, uh, I think Wall Street and and money managers like to put out there. Like it's you know it's like dangerous and it's you know and anything outside of investing in stock funds and mutual funds are alternative assets, right? Alternative, what does that mean? It makes you feel like it's you know blue hair and a nose ring, you know, it's something like you shouldn't <laughs> be doing, right? But but in reality, the things that we're talking about a lot of times are things that are traditionally the Biggest wealth creating uh, and wealth transferring, uh, uh, and you know vehicles uh, that we've known in in mankind, you know, real estate and precious metals and fine art and all these types of things that all are labeled alternative assets. So, so I think part of really what I'm trying to do is, you know, as an entrepreneur, I um, I am just as interested in in finding interesting and creative ways of growing wealth uh, with the money that I have, and looking at that as that as inventory, so to speak, uh, you know, as I am in, in making it in other ways. Well, you brought up a
0: number of amazing points there. I think that for entrepreneurs, often our first instinct is whatever dollars we have, we just throw it straight back into the business we get more reach, more advertising, we hire better people, we redo graphic design, everything goes straight back into the business. But like, what do they say about putting all your eggs in one basket? Like, I understand about investing at the in your business, but I think it's also important to take a portion of that money and put it into other things. And when you talk about alternative investments, those are really the types of investments that I really focus on and the ones that I really like. Like a mutual fund to me is just about the worst vehicle for growing your income, for growing your your assets as I could possibly imagine. I can't even believe that they're still around and that people still actively invest in them.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, but again, it it goes back to, uh, you know, conventional financial wisdom. And if, uh, you know, that conventional financial wisdom is, is created by special interests. Um, and you know, that's, that's what everybody that most people seem to be sort of brainwashed into thinking is that, you know, the the right thing to do, the responsible thing to do. Um, and, uh, if you do something outside of that realm, uh, that you are being inherently irresponsible and you're taking unnecessary risks and being reckless. And so, um, I think, you know, I think that it's just a conditioning issue. That's all.
0: So do you think that conditioning comes th- from money managers or do you think it comes from the government or do you think it just is comes from thin air? It's spontaneous. These type of belief patterns that we have.
1: Well, I think there's no question it's from the banks. <clears throat> I mean, I could. I think I can say that without, uh, without, you know, sounding like a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> but, you know, it's pretty obvious. I mean, the banks, um, the, the banks and the government are very, very closely aligned. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank, U.S. Federal Reserve Bank is not part of the government. It's a consortium of, of private banks, right? But yet it, it controls the money supply and interest rates in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> you know, banks, um, banks have, uh, you know, we decided in 2008 there was, you know, too big to fail. Um, you know, you look at the, the government, um, uh, the way the government makes these, retirement vehicles available, you know, vis-a-vis IRAs and 401ks, majority of people have no idea that they can invest their money outside, um, into these alternative assets, um, and, and, um, they are designed to make it very, very easy just for, for banks to manage the money that goes in, right? So, so I, you know, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, this this notion of, you know, a, a broad portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds is something that is, you know, uh, that that being the, the 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 prevailing and conservative way of investing, that notion's only been around for about a hundred years, you know, and we've had an awful lot of wealthy people and wealthy families come through, uh, you know, well before that, so. So yeah, you're right. I mean, you look at uh, mutual funds for example, um in the last 3 decades, you know, and you get the mutual funds of wealth advisors always show you you know how these um uh, you know the stock market's gone up an average of whatever 9 or 10% and, but the problem is that if you look at mutual funds in general the average return over the last I think the last decade is for the last two decades, has been approximately three, three point five percent, and, and <laughs> that is unbelievably uh, bad. Like, right, it's terrible.
0: Like, right? like, like and, it
1: would be difficult to do worse if you tried. Well, it's barely above inflation. Yeah, right? so inflation averaging about two percent. So really, you're looking at about one, you know, one, one to one point five percent growth, which means you know you're doubling your money maybe every seventy years or so. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's crazy. So when I was doing my research on you, I noticed you use the word real asset investor a number of times. Can you talk me through this a little bit?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think how I define a real asset is different uh, than, than, than how, you know, I think, I think the wealth advisors define it. Um, so, real assets to me are things that are generally tangible, uh, things that you can see, touch, and feel. For example, you own real estate, right? You own real estate. You can drive by it. There's people living in it. They're using it. Uh, that that to me is a real asset. Uh, buying buying stock in you know Netflix. Um, I mean that that you just see in your Ameritrade account, and you can't really you know see, touch, and feel it. Uh, that's not really real. Uh, that and and so that's the big uh, I think overall that's kind of the the theme now, the reason I bring it up though is is more practical because I think that when you look at uh, a big financial setback like you have in two thousand and eight don't, and don't, you know there's no question that the, that it affected the real estate markets obviously it came from the real estate markets but the the there was a tremendous amount of wealth that disappeared during that period of time. And, um, but, you know, I think, I think it was because of, um, you know, it was because of greed, et cetera. But remember the people who owned apartment buildings, people who owned homes and stuff like that. Sure. Their value may have gone down, but they still owned them. Right. They still owned them. They, They didn't just, you could still drive by them. They didn't vanish. Right. Whereas, you know, if you, you owned a, you know, big portfolio of stocks and and um and mutual funds you looked and all of a sudden your money was like you know was a bunch of it was gone it was like vanished into thin air where'd it go and why why'd it go why why did it go somewhere um so to me that's that's the difference between uh you know real asset investing like you can still even if it goes down in value you still own it maybe it's still throwing off cash flow so what i don't necessarily even care if the value goes up or down i'm just I, know, I own something versus something that really i'm just you know theoretically i own a piece of that's on a piece of paper and it's you know the only value that it has is what somebody tells me is worth um and it doesn't really do anything like you know create income or you know it's, it's not something uh that I, that I, that has utility for me
0: So with your personal investments, do you put a lot of money into real estate? Do you put a lot of money into assets that are going to generate cash flow? What's your thought process when you look at an investment? Just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book.
1: So, I, I, um, my, my money, you know, primarily goes through, goes to, uh, for real estate. And, uh, you know, to me, again, it's, it's, you know, there, there's different ways of investing with, even within real estate. You know, you can, as you mentioned, you can be a cash flow investor. You can invest for, uh, you know, you can invest for, uh, you, you know, as, as a, as a growth type, uh, strategy. Uh, you can, you know, you can, you know, you can, you can do value add. There's all sorts of different ways to do it. So within that real estate world, and also, and obviously there's multifamily, there's, uh, there's also self storage, you know, things like that. Um, there's office, there's retail, things like that, that I don't do, but there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different categories within real estate. I, I probably would say for me, it's about 70% of, of, uh, my investment portfolio.
0: Sorry, one second. <coughs> and do you usually do single family homes? Do you do multi-doors? What type of real estate do you usually like to put your money in or what I suppose do you think is the most sustainable or the most safe or the most profitable, however you want to rate things?
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely a multi-family guy. So the more doors, the better. Um, and I think uh a lot of uh, a lot of uh, us who are sort of heavily in the space kind of believe that if you have a little bit more money, um, say you're trying to invest, you know, fifty, hundred thousand uh, dollars into something. Um if you can if you can find a way to get exposure to more than one uh one place, one you know, one home or whatever to do that. Uh, I think, generally speaking, your your investment is going to be a lot more stable, right? In the case of single-family homes, you let's just say, for example, you bought one house and you put 50 grand in. All of a sudden, your 50 grands uh, sitting there, and maybe you had leverage, so your occupancy is either um, you know 100 percent or zero percent. And when you are not occupied and you have leverage, then all of a sudden you're paying out of pocket. Um you know there's no such thing as ninety percent occupancy in the single family home right and then on top of that, I think that um at least for uh, my my own the the scalability of of creating uh a portfolio of you know thousands of of single family homes it's it's just not the same i mean I own uh you know fractional ownership and fractional ownership i have ownership in thousands of units right but you know if i try to do that one one home at a time i mean imagine a, there's you could talk about passive investing but when you own that many different assets it's not passive
0: so is that through a reit or is that through a private held so real it, estate or how does that work
1: yeah so pretty much everything i do <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> Pretty much. <clears throat> <Excuse me. clears throat> Actually, will you give me just a second? Yeah, I'm going to have some water, too. All right. Give me two minutes. <clears throat> Sorry about that.
0: It happens. Do you remember where we left off? No, I don't. (laughs) Me neither. I was asking you about uh, REITs. I was asking you if it's... Oh, yeah.
1: How do I invest?
0: Yeah. Because you said you have partial fractional ownership in thousands of places. So my my question was, do you invest in REITs or is it private funds or how does that look?
1: Yeah. So um the way that I invest now is different than even a few years ago. So I used to buy individual apartment buildings. Um you know, smaller smaller apartment buildings, maybe they'd be, you know, 20 units, something like that. But what um even in that I realized that the scale really wasn't there and that even if you own, you know, multiple 20 unit apartment buildings over time uh, it, it does become onerous and, um, and to the extent that I wanted to figure out how I could, you know, invest with greater exposure to more doors, because it's always about, to me, it's all about more doors, more, you know, having ownership in more, you know, uh, more doors, more, uh, uh geographies, et cetera, that I ultimately ended up selling. The majority of the apartment buildings that I own, <clears throat> and then now I focus primarily investing in um, in in private placements. Now, not everybody can invest in private placements uh, because, uh, at least in the U.S., there are some requirements. For example, uh, you have to be what's called an accredited investor, which means you make either two hundred thousand dollars per year or three hundred thousand if you're filing jointly, or or you have a net worth of over a million dollars outside of your personal, uh, outside of your personal residence. Now, uh, Mm -hmm. for me that has been, you know, that's the way that in reality, most, you know, most people create significant wealth and it's, you know, sort of that private equity model. Right. So, um, so I've shifted towards investing, uh, Pretty much exclusively into private placements. Now that doesn't mean that if a, you know, an opportunity came along and I felt like, well, gosh, you know, that's a, a great deal. Um, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll pick that up. Maybe I still could do that, but it, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't appeal to me uh, nearly as much because I'm finding that the returns that I can get and all of the benefits that I can get, um, you know, being a, a limited partner in a private placement are essentially the same. And, um, and so why take on the extra burden? So that's been sort of my philosophy. Again, it goes back to how can I scale, right? And I have some uh, partners that I work with on the multifamily side and some on the self-storage side. And I just keep you know, dumping money into the same thing because I, I think they, you know the business strategies are sound. They have tremendous track records, et cetera and so i keep kind of just you know going back to the same uh model
0: so let's dig in there for a little bit about private placements can you explain to me how these things work and really break things down for me on this side
1: yeah you know yeah so this is something uh so typically how it works with a private placement like let's just talk about real estate in particular because they can all be structured so differently and In real estate, typically there is, you know, there's an operator who's a general partner. And usually, so the operator is going to be the one who, you know, does all the work, you know, finds the building, you know, does the, uh, does the underwriting and, you know, has a business plan for how to increase equity in that particular asset and then, um, manages the asset, uh, for however long the hold is. And then, um, and then ends up, um, you know, and, and, and does so until, uh, the lifetime of the investment. Now, the limited partner in that case is all the investors, right? The limited partner is the, you know, maybe it's a few million dollars or whatever that were required as an equity stack to, you know, to, to, um, uh, to fund, um, to fund the acquisition of a building. So typically you're still gonna have, you know, some sort of non-recourse debt from Freddie Fannie, you know, and maybe there's a a debt of 80% or 75%. uh, But then, you know, 20, 25% of the the cost of the acquisition still needs to be in equity. And so the limited partner is providing the equity, right? So now um, there's this, uh general partner, and then there's a limited partner. The limited partner has all of the benefits of financial benefits uh, that come with real estate ownership, um, all the tax benefits, appreciation, depreciation, et cetera, uh, cash flow. Uh, and the uh, general partner uh, is in turn uh, is typically going to take some sort of some portion of the uh, profit as uh sweat equity right so um so that's basically in a nutshell that's how a uh, you know private placement works now they can be structured anyway you know any way they want to structure them uh, but you know that that's in a nutshell there's a general partner limited partner and uh and sweat equity on the general partner side
0: and do you traditionally just work with the same company over and over again or do you work with multiple different placements
1: no I, I i typically am of the mindset that if i can find you know like for example in multifamily, there's really only two groups I work with um i don't really see the point unless somebody else can show me the same kind of track record um you know i think people get this idea in their head of, of um diversifying even in the op with their operators and I don't necessarily see a point in that. Um, you know, to me the hardest part i in investing this way is finding a trusted partner. Uh and trying trying to find a trusted um, you know, group that you know, like and trust and you feel like they're performing for you. You feel like you like the way they uh do business. They have a great track record. You have a good communication with them. Um those types of relationships are extremely difficult to come by. And so, um, you know, when people ask me what I look for and when, when I see an offering memorandum of some kind, my answer is typically I don't really look at offering memorandums. I just don't. Um, because if you look at, you know, somebody sends you something and says, take a look at this. This is an awesome deal. I'm not looking for deals. I'm looking for operators, right? I'm looking for people because fundamentally, the it you know you can make money or lose money, uh, in real estate like anything else. Um, and you can uh, and, and when it comes to a pro forma and a business plan that you're seeing on a piece of paper, it is pretty much meaningless unless you know who the source is. So, um, so for me, like no, I I'm not looking for you know ten different operators. I'm looking for a couple different operators in a couple different areas within whatever I am interested in and I want to keep, you know, focusing on those opportunities. I want to be able to look at an operating memorandum and believe the pro forma. Right? That's really important. Because anybody can make a pro forma look good. You know, I can sell you swamp land somewhere and make it look glowing. So
0: so in the beginning how do you do that due diligence process? What are those things that those criteria that need to have a check mark before you'll start to feel safe with the operator, with developing the relationship with this person or with this company?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is some there is some risk uh associated with that, for sure. And sometimes you're going to you're still going to make the wrong decision. Right. But uh, for me, um so for my you know, I have an equity group. Right. So I have an investor uh, credit investor club. Uh, as part of wealth formula and um and so my job has been to be sort of you know the person who sniffs out uh the opportunities and the operators and so um for the way I have done that is uh really just through um basically stalking groups right so first first and foremost typically i 'll hear i won 't be pitched i 'll hear about somebody performing extremely well. And it'll be from you know another investor maybe who's been uh, who's been really happy with the kinds of outcomes that they've gotten and maybe they I hear that they they are you know outperforming performers and that they really like working with this group. So once I, I hear that typically what I'll do is I'll you know then I'll do my own research uh, in the background on a group and I'll do your typical Google searches and you know background checks and stuff like that and then. I'll set up a call typically, you know, on my side, just as an investor um, and not really talk about, you know, the the other investors in my group and that sort of thing. And then um, that conversation will go on for a while and then I'll ask for references and if things sound like they're really interesting, I need to find out basically, I want, I need to know what a track record looks like because again i'm not gonna i'm I'm really not interested in investing with a group that's just starting out who's not done anything who's not had any dispositions um then I like to meet people in person, so then I will typically you know go out and meet meet people and um you know walk properties with them um and you know so, so it's pretty involved right it's still pretty involved but the but the uh, reward at the end of the day is that once you do that with a, a group and you like them, then you, you have an inherent trust in them. You can see them as a partner and you don't need to, need to necessarily do that every single time.
0: Yeah, I agree with that 100%, especially the part about meeting them face to face. I think it was about last month or so, I actually flew over to Washington to have breakfast with one gentleman. It was a 14-hour flight each direction. I was only there for two days. But that breakfast meeting for two and a half hours was so fundamentally important to, you know, I I didn't feel like just having a phone conversation was going to be substantial enough. I think that actually meeting someone, shaking their hand, you know, looking them in the eye and getting a real sense of who they are as an individual. And of course, you're going to make mistakes, but I think it gives you a lot better indication of the merit and uh, the person themselves when you meet them face to face.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And again, like you said, sometimes you're gonna make mistakes. And then sometimes, you know, you're going to you you're gonna you know, everything's gonna sound great, but something's not gonna feel right. And you have to trust that too. Um you know, I had a uh one of my uh uh guys in my group who's actually a really sophisticated investor and, and he's a smart guy, introduced me to another group that was in doing something in the uh the the cannabis space, which, you know, I have an interest in uh peripherally, um just, you know, primarily because I see it as, you know, something that is sort of the end of prohibition here in the US. And um but uh, you know, he was all in and he invest invested a bunch of money and he's like, well maybe this is something that you should, you know, look into maybe the equity group would be interested in this. And so I talked to the guys initially on the phone and I just they had a lot of really good, you know, their backgrounds were, you know, corporate banking and stuff like that. But when I listened to the model, there is just something that just didn't feel right about it to me. And so I didn't take it any further. And, uh, but, uh, but again, this guy in my group was all in. And, um, about a year later I, I talked to him and said, well, what are you up to? I haven't heard from you in a while. And he's like, I'm in a, you know I'm in a multi million dollar uh lawsuit with these guys. It basically was a big ponzi and um uh, you know it, it happens right yeah <laughs> it happens and and it's it's hard to sometimes you you start just getting a sense for what's real and what's not, and sometimes you can't you know there's a there there was another situation that happened here in in the u s which you know with uh with a turnkey provider uh in, in the US that was pretty high profile and then and I don't know if it was something that they did purposely or not. But they basically, you know, were were it did turn out to be again sort of a Ponzi scheme type thing where, you know, some of my investors had bought homes and were getting checks in the mail and they suddenly stopped and then, you know, one of one of my investors actually flew and went look at the house that he was supposedly owned. And it looks like nobody ever really was there um, you know, it was the, it was a house that was, you know, dilapidated and, and, you know, apparently, you know, part of the model was supposed to be that they were going to renovate these houses and make them nice. Right. So, (laughs) you know, it happened. And again, that was with a high profile, uh, really high profile turnkey provider. And it's, it's, it can be pretty scary. So you have to, you know, so if you find a group, that is performing and you work with them for a while and they're, you know, even if, 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 uh, some things don't go as well as you expected, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to be said for safety. Absolutely. So what are the type of
0: returns you've traditionally seen in these types of private placements?
1: Well, (laughs) yeah. So, um, uh, now it sounds kind of ridiculous, but I, I generally want to see, you know, no less than an annualized return of about 20%. Um, and I, and people say, oh, that's just not possible. Well, I've, I've routinely gotten it. and That's what I, that's what I'm interested in. So, um, when I say annualized return, usually it's a mixture of, so there's a, you know, there's a whole period and say it's five years, whatever. Um, What I want to see is, you know, once there's an exit, that if you average the the returns I got over the course of of however many years there's a hold, I want to see at least, at least 20% return. Uh, in reality, um, what, you know, I, with, with, you know, one of the groups that I work with, where the average is about 32%. So. So again when people hear this kind of stuff they're like there's usually no way that's possible. Well I've done it routinely, right? I mean that's kind of what I do for a living. So um you know so yeah yeah, I mean I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for double digit numbers. I'm not I'm not interested in anything that is single digit numbers because for me it's just it's not going to create wealth. So
0: Well and then when you stack that against say the stock market where traditionally you know the returns are anywhere between 7 and 11% or something like that but the risk that is associated with it is just so high you know it it's just so strange that i think these types of investment vehicles are not more widely known because i have seen it in my own life as well and yet everyone just pushes you straight into mutual funds like we discussed earlier or stocks or government bonds and I've seen many investments out there that have definitely double digit returns with a lot more safety and built into them, and like we were saying early, like we were saying earlier, these are real assets. these are things that you can physically touch and see and hold. It's not just conceptual
1: right, yeah, no question about it. I think again, it just goes back to listen, what if you're talking about wealth advisors? et cetera. <clears throat> the reality is like, how do they make money? I mean, they make money with um, assets under management. Typically that's how it works. Right. So it doesn't really matter whether you, um, you make money or not, if they're managing your money in a portfolio, um, you know, every year they're, 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 they're going to take out, you know, one to three, one to 3% of that for managing your portfolio, whether you made money or not. So, it really doesn't help them uh, to have you take that money out of that portfolio and invest in, in real estate.
0: Well, I think it's so important when you start looking at an investment, look at how the person on the other end is going to make money. Are your values aligned? If you make money, do they make money? If they make money, do you make money? If they're going to be making their money by buying and selling as many times as possible and charging you a fee for that is very different than if they're going to get paid a percentage of the earnings, you know? So those are some really basic, but fundamental things that people have to understand before they even put $1 into an investment.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> no question about it. I mean, listen, I think and people get hung up on what the operator gets paid to, which is, I think another sort of uh rookie investor type, uh, you know, approach to things. Like, let me give you an example. So a friend of mine has a a fund. He it, it does uh, non performing notes, <clears throat> and uh, he's a really smart guy. He does a really good job. And um, his fund last year, uh, or the last couple years, was uh, you know basically designed to uh, deliver one percent per month on an investment. So if you had you know you had a a uh, $100,000 investment in it, you're, you know, getting a hundred, you're getting a thousand dollar, uh, check every month. So, I mean, and it was like clockwork. And <clears throat> so people, people rather than looking at that, you know, and saying 12%, that's great. A lot of times would be like, well, what is he getting? Why do you care what he's getting if you're
0: getting <laughs> 12%? Correct. You know,
1: so, so he, so in reality, what his, his audited, uh, fund was getting about, I think it was like 39% return. So of that um, he was getting, he was distributing 12%. And so I, some investors I've, i talked to said, well, you know, that's not really fair, but sure it's fair because where are you going to get 12% and you should be happy he's getting 39% because that makes it so that it's really easy to pay your 12%. So, um, but anyway yeah my my point is that uh, you have to you know this is a different world you have to look at it differently you have to um you know uh, alignment is important too right you you know your your interests need to be aligned i mean you want the operator to do well because if the operator uh is doing well then you know that you're going to do well right and the operator is the same way if 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 they they have to typically uh hit some kind of hurdle before they're going to get paid. And those types of things are important in any kind of design and these types of things, in my opinion. Um, I do think that uh, you do need to be careful because a little bit right now, because there's so many people who are trying to become syndicators and so many people who are, um, you know, not out of nefarious, uh, you know, there no negative, uh, uh, intentions, but you know, um, you know, there's a lot of these groups that are springing up and they're doing, you know, I've got a full time job, but I'm, you know, going to be the asset manager of a $20 million asset in Dallas. And it's just, it, to me, that's scary, right? I mean, you have a bunch of amateur investors with, uh, with an amateur operator and, um, and, you know, without a track record, but, you know, because there are these, these sort of uh groups out there in various areas that are promoting this that that's what's happening but i those are the ones that i'm a little worried about so i uh, i stick with professional operators people people who do this day in day out that's what the the job is i don't really want to invest with somebody who has a full time job you know as a software engineer and they're learning how to you know aggregate funds that makes sense completely
0: and an interesting point you just made is how much the operator is making. I want to see them make a lot of money. I don't want the margins so slim that say they're making 15%, they're paying me 12. There's a 3% margin there. It's not a lot of room for error. If there's a right. 30, you know, 30%, now we're talking. It's like they're going to be able to weather the storms a little bit better here and make sure that I get paid my amount. And anyways, right. if it's a contract in place that you're going to get a certain amount, why do you care? You know, it, it really doesn't make any difference. If you don't like the contract, either renegotiate or find a different
1: deal. Right. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, the the group I primarily work with on the multi-family side, um, they, their model is, you know, there's some fees up front. Um, and the fees are probably a little bit heavier than people are used to seeing in, in multi-family real estate. But but the reason that they have high fees is that then they don't collect anything until um, investors have all of their initial capital back and then there's a split. So on average, they're getting you know investors all of their initial capital back out of the deal through refinancing in about, I think it's 40 months. Um, and at that point, they'll participate in cash flow and, and capital gains uh, alongside the limited partner. But so you have to, you have to look at that and you say, well, what, so what's, what's the alignment there? Well, they are taking fees. That's right. But that also they, every year that you don't get your money back and that you don't have your capital return is, it it, it reduces, um, the amount of money that they actually made from that initial acquisition. And they have to have money to obviously, um, keep the lights open and to employ people to continue to work on the property as well. So, um, but what I like about that kind of model is, okay, well, you're, the operator is, you know, not going to see any upside until, um, the limited partner is made whole and then you're truly a team at that point. So that makes sense. And when I was doing
0: my research on you. I also noticed that you actually have a course, a membership site, where you teach this type of financial education. Can you talk me through what that looks like and how people might be able to get involved in something like that?
1: Yeah, it's called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. I What I did is once I finished, uh, when I when I finished the Robert Kiyosaki books back in 2008, when I first read them, I was super excited, like a lot of people, and I was like, wow, passive income, wow, this is you know, entrepreneurship and cash flow quadrant and all this stuff. Now what? Right? And um so I think I think uh um it took me years to sort of develop the now what uh pathway, that roadmap. And so um that's what this course is about. It's called your roadmap to real Wealth. And um I've got all of my, you know, a lot of the people that I work with that I've learned from over the years. Um, and who are partners of mine, uh, or, you know, I'm a client or, for example, I've got, you know, Ken McElroy, who's a, um, Kiyosaki rich dad advisor uh, in real estate. I've got, um, Tom Wheelwright, who's my CPA. He's also a Kiyosaki CPA. I've got Kevin Day, who's a world renowned asset protection estate planning attorney. Um, I've got, you know, some guys in real estate, uh, Dean Graziosi, who's obviously well-known. Um, you know, just, but there's a, but there's a whole host of just professionals, right? So what we try to do in that um, course is to set a foundation, right? The now what foundation. And then after that, there's an ongoing, uh, there's an ongoing, uh, you know, a community, an online community vis-a-vis a, a portal and also a private face uh, book group. And uh we do these biweekly mastermind calls uh which effectively are just open forums for people who are you know who've got questions who want to talk through things and opportunities or issues et cetera. so um yeah so if, if anybody's interested in checking that out you can go to wealthformularoadmap.com uh but uh, yeah i mean if it's uh if if you're if you're trying to figure out where to get started it's not a bad uh not a bad way to go
0: well, I was reading through it today and watching some of the videos and the content about it. And I said to myself that it looks really exciting. Actually, I wanna reset say that. And I thought to myself, this looks really amazing. I love the way that it was set out with different modules, how it's dripped to you. And I know a lot of the big names that are involved in the project. So I think it's a pretty exciting opportunity for people.
1: Appreciate it.
0: Well, Buck, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Shared a wealth of knowledge today, and definitely lots of things that I want to go and learn more about myself. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them?
1: Yeah, so the podcast is really the primary focus of what I do, and it's Wealth Formula uh, podcast, which you can find on Stitcher, iTunes, YouTube, as we talked about. Um, you can also um, you can also if you'd like, if you want a copy of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth um, you know, you can, you can get that at formula.com as well. You can just download that and, uh, as a PDF copy, but, uh, yeah. And, and anyway, you can always uh, reach out to me through the website as well.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Buck. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies for my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globe-trotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over,
1: but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our
0: newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of
1: the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.